0: Thank you, brother. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. I'll go ahead and read from chapter 8, verse 27, all the way to chapter 9, verse 1. The sermon will focus on verses 31 and following. Beginning in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Thus far the reading of God's word. Please join me one more time in prayer. Father, we need your help. Would your spirit come and give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Help me to preach faithfully. Would you do us good and conform us to the image of your son Jesus in this time? Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, a hydrological divide is a natural boundary between river systems, often running along a ridge of mountains. All of the rainwater that falls on one side of a hydrological divide flows into one set of river systems and drains into the same place. All the water that falls on the other side of a hydrological divide flows into a separate set of river systems. I mention hydrological divides because this week we have crossed just such a divide in Mark's gospel. Last week we saw that all the water, so to speak, from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, to Mark chapter 8, verse 30, flows toward this question, who is Jesus? We noted how that first half of Mark's gospel climaxes in chapter 8, verse 29, with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Well, from Mark chapter 8, verse 31 onward, Mark's narrative begins to flow in slightly different directions. That's not to say we don't learn anything else about who Jesus is. Any page of the Bible is going to reveal to you more about who Jesus is. But from this point, Mark chapter 8, verse 31 onward, the narrative begins to flow uh, toward two different questions. And here they are. First, what did Jesus come to do? And second, what does Jesus call his followers to do? Those are the two questions that will dominate the rest of Mark's gospel. There's a lot in our passage this morning I actually have four points, not those two points, I think will be helped to sort of hold together all that Mark is saying in this section, if we remember those two questions that are driving the narrative. What did Jesus come to do, and what does He call his followers to do? We'll consider our text under four points this morning. First, the cross; second, the confusion; third, the call, and fourth, the kingdom. I'll give those to you again as we walk through the passage. So, first point this morning is the cross. I mentioned that last week in verse 29, we saw that Peter has identified Jesus as the Christ. That is to say, Peter now knows that Jesus is the Spirit-anointed deliverer and King prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Well, there in verse 31, the first verse of our passage, Jesus begins to teach his disciples what the Christ must do. Jesus says there that the Son of Man, which is a title for the Christ from the book of Daniel, must suffer many things. Jesus says the Christ must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. He must be killed. And after three days, he must rise from the dead. Jesus says that he must experience these things because he knows that they are part of the prophesied path of the Christ revealed in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying that these things are going to happen to him not because he's reading his circumstances and saying, hey guys, this is how I see this shaken out. Jesus knows these things will happen to him because he's reading the scriptures. Last week we saw that the Old Testament teaches from the beginning us to expect a spirit anointed deliverer or a Christ. The whole of the Old Testament narrative is driving toward a Christ, both in the patterns of deliverers that we see and the explicit prophecies that are given. Well, what I want to show you in this first point is that the Old Testament teaches that the Christ must suffer and then rise. That is the pattern that the Old Testament gives to us for the Christ, one who suffers and then rises. So in order to show you that from the Old Testament, I want to give you three examples of that pattern of suffering and then rising among those who prefigure the Christ, other spirit-anointed deliverers. And I want to point you to one explicit prophecy that the Christ will, in fact, suffer and rise. So first, three examples of the pattern of suffering and rising— and then one explicit prophecy. So, first example, I hope you recognize these examples from last week Joseph. Remember, we said that Joseph is the first figure uh, with whom, uh, whom the Old Testament identifies as a spirit anointed deliverer. Well, what's the pattern of Joseph's story told to us in Genesis? The pattern is that before Joseph rises to sit at the right hand of Pharaoh, he suffers because he's rejected. And by whom is he rejected? By his brothers, the sons of Israel, who become the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph's brothers become jealous of him. They sell him into slavery. Joseph ends up falsely accused and in prison. So the pattern of Joseph's life, this first spirit-anointed deliverer in the Bible, is that first he suffers, and then he rises. What's the second example? Well, it's Moses We saw last week that Moses was another spirit-anointed deliverer of God's people. Well, you know, don't you, that Moses first faces rejection and suffering before he rises to deliver God's people. You remember that story in the Old Testament at the beginning of Exodus, while the people of Israel are still in slavery in Egypt, and Moses goes to visit them, and he sees an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew. So what does Moses do? He kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. The next day, Moses goes out again, and he sees two Hebrews fighting with each other. And Moses says to the man in the wrong, man, why are you striking your neighbor, your companion, your brother? Do you remember what the Hebrew says to him? He says, man, who made you a judge and a leader over us? So we read that story and we think, wow, bad job, Moses. Should not have taken justice into your own hands and killed that Egyptian. And that does seem true. But did you know that in the New Testament, in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is preaching to these Israelites who have rejected Jesus, Stephen points out something else about Moses' story here. Stephen says, Moses, when he came to kill the Egyptian, It says, quote, "...supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand." Stephen, in his sermon in Acts 7, says, "...this Moses they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge?" So before Moses rises as the spirit-anointed deliverer of Israel... First he is rejected and suffers. Third example of this pattern that the spirit anointed delivers, first suffers, then rises. King David, more than anyone else in the Old Testament, David sets the pattern for the Christ. And unmistakably, if you read the story of David's life in 1st and 2nd Samuel, this is the pattern. First suffering, then rising. So, at the beginning of David's journey to the throne, David is anointed privately by the prophet Samuel and then by the Holy Spirit. But although David, this anointed king to be, serves God's people faithfully, what happens to him? Chapter after chapter after chapter, he suffers. At the hands of who? At the hands of King Saul. He suffers under the Jewish leadership. David is on the run. David is in the wilderness. David is hiding out in caves. David is a refugee. He's in danger from his people, danger from the Philistines, danger from the elements. He suffers. You read the Psalms. He must have suffered from depression. And then after years of suffering and rejection, what happens? David is again publicly anointed as he rises to sit on his throne. David is the archetype for the Christ, first anointed before his rejection, like Jesus is anointed at his baptism, then anointed again as he rises to sit on his throne, as Jesus is anointed or resurrected by the Holy Spirit before he sits down at the right hand of the Father. There you have three examples throughout the Old Testament of the pattern that God's Spirit-anointed deliverer must first suffer and then rise. Well, let me give you one prophetic prediction of the same reality. This is not the only example we could consider. We could look at Psalm 22. We could look at Daniel chapter 9. We could look at Zechariah chapter 13. Uh, The prophetic prediction I want to point you toward, though, is probably the most famous, and it's from Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. So all over the Bible, we see indications both from patterns and from prophecies that the Christ, the anointed one to come, will suffer and then rise. But Isaiah 52 and 53, in an unparalleled way, reveal why the Christ must suffer before rising Isaiah 52 and 53 reveal that the Christ suffers to pay for the sins of God's people before he rises to glory. Isaiah, you might know, writes this about the Christ. He says, he was despised and rejected by men like Joseph, like Moses, like David. Isaiah says, he was pierced. Why? For our transgressions. He was crushed. Why? Why? For our iniquities. Isaiah says he was cut off out of the land of the living. Unlike Joseph, Moses, and David, this Christ suffers unto death. And yet somehow, after he dies, because he suffers unto death, God's servant, the Christ, Isaiah says, rises and is rewarded by his father. Isaiah says because the Christ poured out his soul unto death, Therefore, God will reward and exalt him. Friends, ever since mankind rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, every man, every woman has been a sinful sufferer and has died. Isaiah 53 reveals that the Christ will be a sinless sufferer who dies as a substitute, then rises to glory to bring us with him all the way back to God's garden. There you have the patterns and the prophecy from the Old Testament. In Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Peter had said to Jesus, you are the Christ. Here in verse 31, Jesus is telling the disciples that he has come to do what the Old Testament says the Christ came to do, which is to suffer and then to rise. Notice there in verse 32 that Mark says that Jesus said these things plainly. See that in verse 32? And he said this plainly. Well, Jesus has very frequently used figurative language throughout Mark's gospel. He's talked about wineskins and crumbs being fed to dogs and binding the stronger man and sowing seeds. That's not how Jesus talked about his death and resurrection. He said it plainly, clearly, directly, without metaphor. In the next few chapters, Jesus will repeat at least twice more in the very plain language that he will suffer unto death and then rise from the dead. And yet, in spite of Jesus' clarity, in spite of his plain language, Jesus' message about the cross, first point, is met with terrible confusion. Our second point, the confusion Back in verse 29, Peter had nailed it in identifying the Christ. Here in verse 32, we read that Peter hears what Jesus says about suffering, and Peter takes the Christ aside and begins to rebuke him. That almost hurts to read, right? Peter did what now? Peter, do you remember three verses ago who you said you're talking to? And to say that Peter is confused is actually to put it too weakly. Peter is caught up. Mark tells us in demonic opposition to Jesus. Peter yields to the satanic temptation to set human priorities above God's priorities. So there's there's no indication in the text that Peter was demon possessed or anything like that. Uh, but Just because he listened to Satan's temptation to oppose Jesus' journey to the cross, Peter ends up speaking for Satan here. Peter had wanted to take Jesus aside and rebuke him privately. But Jesus understands that this error is so serious that Jesus responds very publicly to Peter in front of all his disciples. Look there with me in verse 33. Verse 33 says, But turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Peter likes this idea of a Christ who rises because that puts Peter on a fast track to glory and prominence. Peter doesn't like so much the idea of a Christ who first suffers because some of that suffering might splash on to him. Peter's eyes have been opened to who the Christ is, but his vision is still terribly blurry. And Jesus tells us why Peter has failed to see. Why is it that Peter has been so confused? We'll look at the rest of verse 33. Jesus says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Peter is not reading reality through the lens of the Scriptures. He's reading what he wants into his understanding of who the Christ is. Peter is blind here to the wisdom of God that ordained the cross. Peter is blind to the holiness of God that demands the cross. Peter is blind to the glory of God that will be displayed in the cross. Why? Because Peter is preoccupied with the things of man. Human comfort, human happiness, human priorities on a human timetable. Because Peter's mind is preoccupied with these things of man, he does not see reality clearly. And friends, when, when we are preoccupied with the things of man, we don't see reality clearly either. Have you ever tried to take a picture Uh, with a camera that only has one lens. I know all of our phones now have like 18 lenses on the back of them. But if you've ever tried to take a picture with a camera that has just one lens, you know that it's very important to focus on the right thing. So imagine you're trying to take a picture of a bird that's way far away, and halfway between you and the bird is this little branch, right? And so you're trying to zoom in on the bird so that the whole picture looks right. But inevitably, at least when I try, what happens? Right, You take the picture and you look at it and you're zoomed in on the branch, right? And everything else is blurry. But you could, you could count the ants on this little branch between you and the bird. But the bird is like totally fuzzy. Friends, that's what happens when we are preoccupied with human concerns. With our desires, our goals, our glory, our timetable, our happiness. The God at the center of reality becomes blurry to us, and so we become very confused. When man, rather than God, is in the center of our vision, we don't understand. Friend, the gospel, the gospel is the good news of this message that we must trust in Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection, to save us from God's wrath, to make us right with Him. The gospel will not make any sense to you if man is more important than God in your eyes. A Christian, true theology, true theology about salvation, true theology about God's sovereignty, it will not make any sense to you if man is bigger than God in your eyes. Uh, Brothers and sisters, on a very practical level, when we think that our career or our ministry, or our marriage, or our children, or our money, or our schedule is really all about me getting what I want on my terms, rather than how these things relate to God and His glory, then we may be sure that in those moments, our spiritual vision is blurry, and we might even end up opposing God and His purposes. We might even end up speaking for Satan if what we love most is man-centered stuff rather than the God at the center of the universe, the cross will not make sense to us. God's ways will not seem good to us. And the suffering that God calls us to endure will baffle us. We will experience the confusion that Peter does here in our passage. Just as a brief aside, friends, do you see how how, how firm and how kind Jesus is to Peter? Jesus loves Peter enough to rebuke him. Jesus keeps Peter on the team. And in love for Peter, Jesus goes to the cross that Peter tried to talk him out of in order to save Peter. Praise God for a patient Christ. Well, in the face of Peter's confusion, Jesus issues there in verse 34 a sobering call about what it means to follow this Christ who suffers before he rises. That's our third point this morning, the call. Jesus wants to make sure that everyone understands that because the cross is central to what the Christ does, the cross is central to what it means to follow this Christ. Look there in verse 34. We're going to spend some time on this verse. Christian, if you belong to Jesus, you need to know this verse. Mark chapter 8 verse 34. It says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Friends, this is the call of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Four things I want to point out about this call. They're all very simple, but we need to observe them. The first thing to say is that Did you notice that Jesus is speaking to anyone who wants to be a Christian? Sometimes we can talk about Christianity like this. Look, all you need to do to be a Christian is agree that you're a sinner and sign off on a few doctrines, say that, yep, those things are true, and just try to stay out of jail. But that's all it takes, really. It's free. But if you want to be really serious and earn bragging rights in church— then what you should do is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. That's kind of the next level stuff. But friends, that's not what Jesus says here. Right? Jesus says, if anyone would come after me. Right? Jesus is defining for us what it means and involves to be a Christian. Friend, if you are a Christian or if you want to be a Christian, what Jesus says here is part of what is demanded now the whole Bible teaches very clearly that our response to Jesus' commands doesn't earn us obedience, right? We we could never do that. We receive forgiveness of sins through faith alone. The Bible is also very clear that faith in Jesus unites us to Jesus. And having been united to Jesus, the life of Jesus begins to be produced in us. And we are called and caused to walk in this way, to walk like Jesus walked. There is no salvation by faith without resultant cross-carrying option. Jesus is talking to anyone who wants to be a Christian. A second thing we need to see in this verse is that Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, If you want to follow Jesus, you must acknowledge Jesus is king and I am not. Our default mindset is to live like we are the king, if not of the whole world, then at least of my little sphere. The sovereign rule for my life is what do I want? What is my kingly will? As I understand it, there is a very popular tidiness guru on the internet named Marie Kondo. Anyone familiar with Marie Kondo? Well, Marie Kondo, big fans in the back, Marie Kondo became famous in part for her rule uh, that when you're trying to sort of declutter your life or your house, you're to take an object and you're to ask yourself, does this object spark joy for me? And if it doesn't, turns out you don't need that object. Well, that might be a very helpful rule for decluttering your home. But do you see that that's basically how most of us default to living, right? This decision, this life trajectory, this way of being, this way of responding, these words of saying. We say, well, did these words spark joy for me on my terms right now? Because if they do, I'll do it. But if they don't, then I'm not going to do it, right? Well, friends, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not hating on Marie Kondo. I probably have a lot to learn from her, in fact. But can you see that the rule for living for Christians is different than does this spark joy for me on my terms right now. The rule for Christians, because they are called to deny or dethrone themselves in recognition of the kingship of Jesus, is does Jesus want this? Would this spark joy for my Lord, for my Savior? Right By, by the way, That's actually the path to greater long-term joy. No doubt. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is not calling us to joylessness, but to greater joy in his service. I'm not saying that you can't ever take account of your own preferences or desires, right? If you're trying to pick what to drink this afternoon, Jesus probably wants you to drink what you would like to drink, right? But the rule for deciding how Christians live, because they have denied themselves, the rule is, What does King Jesus want? The Christian realizes her life is no longer primarily about her. The Christian realizes that his desires, his emotions, his pleasures are no longer the highest law of the land. The Christian knows that self is not king. Jesus is king. So we've denied ourselves. Third thing to see about this verse is that Jesus calls us to take up our cross. Jesus calls us to take up our cross. Saints, listen, in God's wisdom, the path of the Christ leads him through the terrible suffering of the cross. God's perfect and eternal love for his son Jesus did not mean that God exempted Jesus from suffering. The story of the universe is the story of the Father and the Son loving one another in the Spirit. And in God's unsearchable wisdom, that story involved the Son dying painfully on a cross. Brothers and sisters, as it is with our Lord Jesus, so it will be with us. God's great love does not exempt us from suffering. In God's wisdom, the path that God calls us to involves a kind of cross. The cross has become far too familiar to us. It's become a sentimental and religious image. We forget that the cross was a horrendous method of public execution. It was like a swear word in Jesus' day. You didn't say it in polite society. In Jesus' day, convicts who were condemned to die by crucifixion were forced to carry their own crossbeam out to the place where they were going to be killed. So taking up your cross meant accepting the sentence of public humiliation and death. Well, Jesus is clearly not saying that any Christian, all Christians will most certainly be called to be literally crucified. Clearly, Jesus is not saying that. What Jesus is saying is that anyone who desires to follow him must be willing to embrace suffering for his sake, even suffering to the point of a shameful and painful death. Jesus seems in particular to be thinking about the persecution that will accrue to those who follow him. For many, many millions of Christians across history and today, being a Christian means persecution. Being a Christian means being ostracized. It means being alienated from your family. It means hostility from your own government. In places like North Korea or Afghanistan or Somalia, being a Christian can quite literally get you killed. Some of Mark's original readers were literally crucified for following Jesus. Jesus says that those who follow him can expect the same kind of treatment from the world as he received. So what What Jesus means in the bullseye of what he's talking about when he says to take up your cross is the persecution that accrues to us for following him. Christians go back and forth debating with one another about whether our call to take up our cross also includes all of the suffering that God calls us to walk through, whether or not it has to do with being a Christian overtly. So you read passages like Romans chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 1, And it seems that even the sufferings that come to us just because we live in a fallen world, we go through them with Jesus as one united to him, trusting him as we walk through them. I'm not sure that that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here, but saints, we are certainly called to walk through all of the suffering that God calls us to, mindful that Jesus walked this path as well. I think about this often. Think about the book of Job remember Job? You read the first chapters of Job, and from one perspective, it seems like, man, Job is just the unluckiest person in the whole world. But from another perspective, we see that Job is suffering what he's suffering because he loves God, right? When, when the Sabaeans come, and they kill Job's servants, and they steal his livestock, they're just being jerks, right? They, they don't think, wow, Job is a godly man, and we hate God, so we're going to steal his sheep. It's just a, a big misfortune, that this happened to Job. But really, Job is suffering persecution from Satan for his righteousness. Saints, I wonder, when we get to heaven, how much of the suffering that we go through will be revealed to have been the, caused by Satan's hatred of Christians? Right, how many things that we walk through that are so hard will we find out, yeah, that happened to us because Satan hates God's children. And as we endured it, we endured it for Jesus. How much will we find that out? I don't know. Uh, the point that's very clear is that what we cannot say to Jesus is, Jesus, I'll follow you this far, but no further. Right? We cannot attach terms and conditions to our allegiance to Jesus we can't say Jesus, I reserve the right not to sacrifice this thing. I reserve the right to trust you but not in case of this difficulty. Jesus says if you want to follow me, you need to be willing to follow me to the point of carrying a crossbeam out to the place of public execution to die. Brothers and sisters, we're we're never called in scripture to chase after suffering for its own sake but we're most certainly called to embrace any and all suffering involved in following Jesus, even to the point of the cross. Jesus is talking to all Christians. He's calling us to deny ourselves, and he calls us to take up our cross. Fourth and final thing to see on this verse, I know we've slowed down and zoomed in, is that Jesus calls us to follow him. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We are not being called here to a general attitude of stoicism and resignation. Jesus is not sort of calling us to a general sort of tough-mindedness. Jesus is calling us to himself. The path that Jesus wants us to walk is one of relationship with Jesus, and it's one of imitation of Jesus, walking with him and walking like him. This means the highest goal of the Christian's life is not to be as comfortable as we can right now. Comfort is not bad, but it's not our highest goal. Our highest goal is to know Jesus and to be like him. Jesus calls us to follow him on a path of holiness, a path of turning from sin, even when that causes us to suffer. I was so encouraged uh, not too long ago, by the example of a Christian I know who is taking serious, costly, inconvenient steps to root out a particularly ensnaring sin. Right? That's part of the cost that Jesus calls us to bear in following him in holiness, the cost of turning from the easy popular option of sin. Jesus also calls us to follow him on the path of self-giving love. What is the cross if it's not an expression of self-giving love, even for God's enemies? So Christian, Jesus calls you to love others to the point that it's a sacrifice. Jesus doesn't call us to sort of do and buy and enjoy everything that you want and then be thoughtful with the leftovers. Jesus calls us at times to have less so that others might have more. Sometimes he calls us to empty ourselves so that others might be filled. Sometimes he calls us to give up so that others might receive. Sometimes he calls us to risk so that others might gain. Jesus calls anyone who would come after him to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. What does that look like practically for us on Tuesday morning? Well, saints, in part, I can't answer that for you. That's to be answered by each of us. Jesus wants us to take his words and run with them, applying them in our lives. God willing, we'll think more about what this might look like practically for us in coming weeks because Jesus repeats this call or a very similar call two more times in Mark's gospel. God willing, as we come to those, we'll think more about fleshing out what this looks like practically. Brothers and sisters, this is a verse that I pray for myself every day because I know that I don't want to do it. Every day I pray, Jesus, would you help me to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you, to know what that looks like, and to do it. Saints, we ought to be challenged by this call. It is a sobering one. And if we're going to heed it, we need to see why this path is one worth walking. The final thing we need to consider this morning Is the reason that jesus gives here in these verses that we ought to embrace a costly and unreserved commitment to follow him jesus calls us to the path of the cross but he does not call us to the path that ends at the cross the path that we're called to walk ends in the eternal joy enjoyment of god's glorious kingdom That's our fourth and final point this morning. The kingdom, the cross, the confusion, the call, and the kingdom. Look there at the final two verses of our passage. Chapter 8, verses 38, and chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Chapter 9 says, and he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Way back in May, you remember that? When we studied Mark chapter 1 together, we saw that the center of Jesus' preaching message was that now that he's shown up, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, way back in May, we adopted a two-part definition of the kingdom of God. So first, God's kingdom is his saving reign. The kingdom of God is his kingly power in action through Jesus to rescue sinners. And secondly, God's kingdom is the blessed domain that God's rule creates, like the Garden of Eden. The kingdom of God is where God's rule as king brings blessing and flourishing. Well, from the beginning of Mark's gospel, we've seen that because King Jesus is on the scene, the kingdom is already at hand. King David's son has had his first anointing at his baptism. And after this king suffers, he rises and is glorified by the Spirit. He rises not only back to life, but into heaven to sit not at the right hand of Pharaoh, not on a throne in Jerusalem, but at the right hand of God. Saints, Right now, King Jesus is reigning. He is rescuing sinners by his kingly power into God's eternal kingdom. You can see that from chapter 9, verse 1. It says there that some standing there will not die until they see that God's kingdom has come in power. We're well, willing, we'll think more about what that means next week. We read in verse 38 that as well as this already dimension to God's kingdom. There is a not yet dimension. There is a future dimension when King Jesus will return visibly, Mark says, in the glory of his father to consummate his kingly realm, his kingly rule over the new heavens and the new earth. So saints, this is a really helpful phrase to keep in mind. This is a truth taught all throughout the Bible. God's kingdom is inaugurated at the first coming of Jesus And it is consummated at the second coming of Jesus, which remains in the future. What does this have to do with Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 91? Well, friend, the reason Jesus gives that you should take up your cross and follow him is because that is the road into the eternal joy of his kingdom. Look again at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me why? Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Friend, do you understand all the things that Jesus is asking you to lay down in order to follow him? You're going to lose those things anyway. Life is terribly, terribly temporary and so, so fragile. If you don't believe that, just turn on the news. And Jesus says, listen, if your aim is to hold on to what you've got in this life, you're destined to lose it. Friend, when, when you hear Jesus' call to, to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, what is it that your heart tightens its grip around? Because you don't want to lose that. I certainly have things. Right, Saints, doesn't it help to realize that you will lose that when you die? if not before, and on the day of judgment, when Jesus, the king, comes to give to everyone according to his works, if we've spent our lives trying to hold on to our little kingdom, on that day, we'll be left with nothing but reasons for a good God to condemn us. Jesus says there in verses 36 and 37, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Saints, none of the, the shiny stuff this world offers us can compare to the eternal life that we stand to gain or lose through our response to Jesus. And Jesus says, if your goal is to hold on to your best light now, you'll, you'll lose it. But if you give me your life, says Jesus, if you'll step off the throne and embrace loss for the sake of Jesus... Jesus says, guess what? That's how you get life. That's how you keep your life, not only now, but forever. Saints, the testimony of God's word and of his people is that even now in this life, true life is the life of following Jesus. That is the life where there is, in spite of suffering, true joy, true peace, true life. And when the last Christian has finished his walk down the road of the cross, those who follow Jesus will enjoy life forever in his kingdom. What will it be like? The miracles of Jesus give us a brief foretaste. No more sickness. No more hunger. No more death. No more paralysis. No more suffering. Only peace in God's good kingdom. Matthew's gospel records the words of verse 38 like this. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then when Jesus comes in the future, he will repay each person according to what he has done. A Christian, as a motive for suffering with him now, Jesus holds out to you the promise that when he comes again, he will generously, graciously repay even your imperfect obedience. We we know that for those who belong to Jesus, the, the repayment for our sins has been paid by Jesus' death. But Jesus means what he says when he says that the Son of Man is going to come and repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus doesn't get terribly specific about what it looks like, but he wants us to know when we serve him, When we suffer for his sake, when we deny ourselves and enthrone him as king, Jesus sees, Jesus knows, and when Jesus comes back, Jesus will reward when he comes to bring his kingdom to an eternal climax. Saints, when the cost of following Jesus ramps up, Jesus calls us to think on the future, to cast our minds to the joy of his eternal kingdom What did Jesus come to do? And what does Jesus call us to do? Mark has begun his answer to those two questions. He'll continue throughout the rest of these chapters. What we've seen this morning is that Jesus came to save sinners by suffering on the cross and then rising to glory. And Jesus calls us to follow him First in suffering, and then in eternal glory in his kingdom. Saints, let's pray that God would strengthen us to follow our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross of your son Jesus, that you laid on him our straying, our rebellion, our worldliness, our cowardice, so that our sin might be condemned in his death, that we might be saved and that through his resurrection we might rise to him with eternal life. Thank you, Father, for the cross of the Lord Jesus. God, we confess, we are prone to the confusion of Peter here. Would we so quickly set our minds on human things, and our view of your glory and of your call in our lives becomes so blurry? Forgive us, Lord, for setting our minds on the things of man? Lord, would you strengthen each one of us, whether for the first time or the the millionth, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Jesus. Would he and his glorious kingdom be so precious in our eyes that it's our joy to follow him through all to which you call us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.